Welcome to the Life Christian Church Podcast, where our mission is to inspire people to the life God dreams for them as we spread His love in ever-widening circles. When Sharon and I came to the New York City metropolitan area 31 years ago, we came out of a sense of calling. A lot of people ask, you know, how in the world did you guys, both being raised in Bible Belt America, end up in New Jersey, in a suburb of New York City, and it's really quite simple. Uh, many of you have heard my story, uh, uh, have per- perhaps uh, uh, read about it in some of the things I've written, but when I was a teenager, I felt a very distinct call to build a great church in a suburb of New York City. I had never been to New York City, but I had a sense of calling that was incredibly distinct to me. And at the age of 29, a small group of people asked me to be their pastor. And though there were a lot of other things that we could have done that would have been much more fully developed uh, and uh, a lot easier, I knew that we had this calling on our life, and we said yes. And uh, Sharon tells a story uh, that within a couple of weeks after being here, We were driving by a local cemetery, and I looked at the cemetery, and I said, you can buy my grave plot there if you want to, because I'm, this is where I'm going to spend the rest of my life. And um, 31 years later, and hopefully a long way away from needing that piece of ground, this is where we've spent our life. And um, the grace of God has been on us in amazing ways, and, and I just I couldn't be more grateful. Um, one of the people that I looked to when we moved here as a model of success in this area, in an era when there wasn't a lot happening in the Christian church in the New York City metropolitan area, times have changed and are changing, for which I'm very grateful. But 30 years ago, there was, a, uh, it was not a great season for the Christian church in the New York City metropolitan area. But there was a church that had broken through and had success at a level that, to me, was um, an example of what could be, and that was Christian Cultural Center, Brooklyn, New York, led by Dr. A.R. Bernard. And... Um, We would look and listen, and I would visit, and uh, I saw so many things that, that I wanted to aspire to. And um, over the years, I've had the opportunity to get to know uh, Dr. Bernard a little bit and more as time has advanced, uh, and my appreciation and respect for him has just grown. He's one of the most influential religious leaders, and transformative visionaries in the United States. He is the founding and senior pastor of Christian Cultural Center, which has more than 40,000 members. Campuses, not just um, uh, the flagship in, in Brooklyn, which is an amazing campus, but also in Long Island and Orlando, Florida, as well as a virtual campus that reaches many, many thousands of people around the world. He is a preeminent thought leader in faith and culture, highly sought after as a media contributor. You may have seen him on Fox News or Perhaps you've seen him on MSNBC. He's on both. That should make you, some of you just took a deep breath. Uh, 
at the mention of either. CNN, NBC, CBS, BET, on and on. In March 2021, he launched ARBTV, a digital platform that features diverse topics at the intersection of faith, culture, and media. As an author, he shares transformative messages in two books, Happiness Is and his most recent book, uh, a book that my wife Sharon, I think, has already bought as a gift for me, Four Things Women Want From a Man. He previously served as the president of the Council of Churches of the City of New York and is currently the president of the Commission of Religious Leaders in New York City, an organization representing all faith traditions. He and his wife, Karen, celebrated 50 years of marriage on October 1st. And are the proud parents and grandparents of seven sons and 25 grandchildren. Hey, would you give Dr. A.R. Bernard a great big TLCC welcome. <laughs> Thank you, my Thanks for being here. Boy, when he said 25, it sounded like a lot. <laughs> Good morning. It is a blessing to be with you. And um, people ask, well, why do you have seven sons? Because we wanted a daughter. <laughs> and so it was up, if it was up to my wife, we'd probably have ten sons. But now, after having seven sons, of course, now we have daughters and um, they have become dear to us. And I'm glad to have one of them with me today. Arkel, come on, stand up. I'm so proud of her as she, come on. <laughs> with her mom. And um, she's got a new book that's, that's come out where she really talks about um, her loss be, uh, because she lost her husband and um, how you how you grow from those kind of experiences and invest that into um, your future. And I'm looking forward to that book. When, when does it hit the... I'm plugging for your book here, so... <laughs> Christmas? Okay, fantastic. See, she gets teary-eyed uh, about it. And that's a whole story how she gathered women together who were experiencing the same kind of loss and pain and turned that pain into power. Um, again, readings from my lovely wife, uh, Karen. Um, amazing story, and I thank God for giving me not only the woman that I wanted, but the woman that I needed. And it doesn't always work out that way. But I got both, and I'm grateful to God for that. Um, for her commitment all of these years to this covenant relationship and allowing me to grow and mature as a man. The book, Four Things, there are four things that God wants from a man, maturity, decisiveness, consistency, and strength. There are four things that a woman wants from a man, maturity, decisiveness, consistency, and strength. There are four things that men struggle with in life. Maturity, decisiveness, <laughs> consistency, 
and strength. My desire was to give women a framework to make better decisions when it comes to committing herself to a relationship with a man. And also to give a standard for men to come up to coming out of my own failures, my own time of immaturity, that season in my life that my wife helped me to become a better man. When I finished the manuscript of the book, I asked her to read it, and uh, a few days later she gave it back to me and she said, you've been listening to me. The number one complaint that women have about men is that men don't listen. But I know that that doesn't happen in this congregation uh, uh, at all. But um, it's, a, it's, one of those, it's written in a very simple form, and it was written intentionally to be the kind of book that you go back to again and again. How many have read books that you just read over and over again because it has information and principles that are evergreen, that are eternal? And remember, whenever you read a book like that, five, maybe ten years later, the book is rich with information that you missed. Not because the book has changed, but because you've changed. So as you grow and mature in life, your perspective changes, and you look at things that you saw in the past in a different way. It's true of Scripture. As you, more, as you grow and mature spiritually, you go back to some of those texts that you really thought you understood, and all of a sudden it comes alive in a new way. And that's the objective that God has for us, to learn, grow, and lead. To learn, grow, and lead. How many know that you're all called to leadership? You're all called to leadership. Even those of you who did not raise your hand, you will get there one day when you realize that when you have people looking to you for anything, you are taking on a leadership role and responsibility. I thank God for my relationship with um, your pastors. Um, relationships grow over time. I've learned to manage carefully the relational spaces in my life because there are relationships born of the flesh and there are relationships born of the spirit. How many have learned that? How many have learned that? Yeah, there are relationships that God births into your life and there are relationships that the flesh can birth into your life. Relationships born of the flesh have a terminal condition in them because there is death associated with those things. But relationships born of the spirit have life associated with it, and they, they enrich you, they build you up, and they tend to be the lower maintenance relationship. How many know about high maintenance relationships? Don't point, just, just raise your hand like that. Good, good. Praise the Lord. Yeah, and, and relationships, you know, there are four stewardship responsibilities that God has given to all of us in life. Stewardship, and because essentially, you know, how many read the earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, the world, and they that dwell therein? So it all belongs to God. You will never see a U-Haul following a hearse at a funeral because you can't take it with you. We come in with nothing, we leave it all behind. So essentially, we are possessors of nothing but stewards of everything. Everything we have has been entrusted to our care. 
and we exercise a stewardship responsibility. God has given us four stewardship responsibilities. Stewardship over our time, and we will be held accountable in this life and the next for how we manage the time that is given to us. And when it comes to time, we're all created equal because all, we all get 24 hours. That's it. You can't save time. There's no such thing. You can only use it. It's not like you can bank it somewhere and draw, with, you know, draw from it when you need it. No. You never get a second chance to spend today. So we have stewardship responsibility over our time. We have stewardship responsibility over our talent. There is a God-given skill, talent, ability, aptitude, whatever you call it, that God has put inside of every human being. You are wired according to that particular gifting. And it is in the use of that gifting that you discover your purpose. We all have purpose and meaning. And that purpose and meaning is associated with how God wired us and the gift that he's given us to contribute to the betterment of human society. The major theme that runs through Scripture as the original intention of God is human flourishing. We're going to talk about one of the elements that lend to human flourishing today, but let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful wonderful congregation. Thank you for this precious leadership that you've established here. We pray today that the spirit of truth will be present, that you will touch our eyes to see, our ears to hear, and our hearts to receive, because we realize that no matter how great the preacher, the teacher, the singer, it is still the ministry of the Holy Spirit who touches our hearts for transformation and touches our minds to think differently. So we ask your blessing upon us in Jesus' precious name, we pray. And let everyone say amen. So congratulations on 31 years of ministry. As I looked at the video. Okay, that was practice. Now let's do it for real. Thank you for 31 years of ministry. In the 11th chapter of Genesis, the people said, let us make a name for ourselves. In the 12th chapter of Genesis, God speaks to one man, Abraham, and says, if you covenant with me, I will make your name great. There's a difference when you try to make a name for yourself and when God makes your name great. In this world, identity is based on what you achieve. In the kingdom of God, identity is based upon what you have received, and that is an identity with Christ. It is in that identity that we discover our true selves and apply ourselves in ways that make the world a better place, bring glory to God and his kingdom, and transform lives. Fame comes in a moment, but greatness comes with longevity. I'll say it again. Fame comes in a moment, in a moment of time. You've heard people having their 15 minutes of fame, 
and then you don't hear anything from them ever again. But greatness comes with longevity. And Jesus said there's nothing wrong with being great. If you want to be great, find a way to serve people. And the length and degree to which you serve them will determine longevity and greatness in your life, in your ministry, in your business, in your marriage, in your relationships across the board. The key to longevity is managing continuity and change. Managing continuity and change. Someone asked, well, what's the secret to being married for 50 years? Two words, adapt and adjust. What's the secret to having a successful business for a long period of time? Adapt and adjust. What's the secret of having a successful ministry for 31 years? Adapt and adjust. And the reason we adapt and adjust because change is the only constant in life. You can't make life the way you want it to be. You can only understand the way it is and adapt and adjust to that reality. It would be absurd to spend your winter in the Northeast standing on a corner in a pair of shorts and a short sleeve shirt protesting winter. It's not going to change. You have to adapt. You have to adjust. You have to change. Adjust are the small changes that you make along the way. Adapt are the major changes that you have to make because the change that's taking place, the situation, circumstances are beyond just the present moment. They reach out into the future. Especially in the context of marriage where someone may get ill and not able to do a lot of the things that they used to do when they were younger and then the spouse has to adapt to a new form of relationship because things have been introduced that change the dynamic of the relationship. That's why when you have longevity, it should be celebrated. It should be celebrated. Unfortunately, we don't celebrate it the way we should. There should be models. 31 years is a model. 50 years is a model. 40 years of marriage is a model. 44 years of ministry, that's a model. And the interesting thing, can we talk? I'm leaving. That was a poor response. Can we talk? Okay, that's better. Yeah, talk back to me. Don't interrupt me, but talk back to me. We, we live in a, in a fast-paced society. Everything is microwave, instant. Even microwave spirituality, microwave success. So what we have is a generation who are experiencing success in many ways, whether it's in business, but especially in ministry. And they're achieving in 10 years what it took our generation 20, 25, 30, 40 years to achieve. And what happens in a situation like that is that the success outpaces the development of the character necessary to support that success. 
Because your skill, talents, and abilities can take you to great heights that only character can sustain. And without the development of the character to sustain that success, we are having and will continue to have the kind of crisis in leadership that we've been seeing and reading about in the newspapers. A beautiful text says, Beloved, I wish above all things that you prosper and be in health even as your soul prospers. So the prosperity and development of the soul, the internal individual, is critical when it comes to steady growth and development, longevity and sustainability. How many have ever heard of Tiger Woods? I don't want to pick on him because I was excited every time that it looked like he was coming back because of what he symbolizes. An incredible golfer. Incredible in the game. Tiger Woods was the first billion-dollar athlete. That's billion with a B. Billion-dollar athlete. That is amazing. 100 million of that billion he received from playing golf. 900 million of that building he received from endorsements. So the image that he represented was worth more than his golf game. Because companies wanted to associate with that clean-cut image of success. But the moment his wife went golfing on his car, everything changed. Everything changed. And all of a sudden, that image was not what it was thought to be. And the first thing that happened is that 900 million began to shrink because companies were removing him from their product and it diminished. Of course, his golf game was affected. He kept trying to come back. But he's one of the many examples of how your skill, talent, and ability can make you so valuable and take you to great heights. But if you don't have the consistency of character and <laughs> the development of soul, then when that character is tested, you will fail the test. And it will affect all the success that you achieved. This is a good place to say amen. Yeah. We've seen it again and again and again, managing continuity and change is the key to success. The secret to managing continuity and change is knowing what to change and what to continue. Because if you change what you should continue, you'll lose your identity. If you continue what you should change, you'll become irrelevant. It's true of your personal brand. It's true of your ministry brand. It's true of your corporate brand, whatever it may be. Change is the only constant 
in life. Managing continuity and change, knowing what to change and what to continue is the secret to it all. Let's go to our text, which is found in the book of Acts, chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Acts chapter 3. I am reading from the English Standard Version. Now, if you read Acts chapter 2, and all of you should be familiar with Acts chapter 2, because that's the birthing of the church, the birthing of a new age, the, the manifest presence of God through the Holy Spirit here working in the world, poured out upon all of humanity to extract from that humanity a people called the church and to bring the conviction necessary for sin and an understanding of righteousness and judgment upon Satan. It was a very powerful event in Acts chapter 2. And here, the next chapter, these apostles are experiencing the impact, the power that came to them. In verse 1, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, from where? From when? From birth. He was lame from birth. This is important because Sometimes, if someone was well, got sick, and got better, they can discount the miracle and say it was just a natural process. But to be born this way elevates this to another level. He was lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called beautiful, which means People were familiar with this individual. To ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And the lame man fixed his attention on the apostles, Peter and John, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately the man's feet and ankles were made strong. How many believe in miracles? You are a miracle. Verse 8. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. And entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Remember... He was laid daily there, so people knew who he was. So to see him doing this, this was amazing. And all, verse 9, the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate 
of the temple, asking for alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. The key word here, key word here, is the word expecting. Expecting something. Just write that down. Expecting something. What's the key word? Expecting. Expecting something. Let's go to another passage of Scripture in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3. And I'm not going to read the whole... Well, let's, let's, let's go there. So, Luke, chapter 3 is a very powerful verse because it contextualizes Jesus and the Gospel as a historical event. This is important because Christianity is not something that someone made up. It is a fact of history. It happened. It happened. And there are not only biblical evidence, there are extra biblical texts as well that support the reality that Jesus was an actual individual who lived here on the planet, who died on a cross and rose from the dead. How many believe that? Amen. 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 So don't you ever let anybody tell you, well, you know, I don't believe that stuff. No, it's historical fact. Our faith is rooted in history. To introduce that historical context, the writer Luke, in the Gospel of Luke chapter 3, outlines the power structure, the backdrop of the Roman Empire, who's governor, who's tetrarch, and it lists all of these individuals. And then I love it, the way it continues in the text. It says, and the word of the Lord came to John in the wilderness. That's powerful. The word of the Lord didn't come to the power structure. It went to a man named John in the wilderness. John now begins his ministry of preaching. And a baptism in water, which was a baptism of repentance. The crowds come out. John is respected as a prophet. And the crowds begin to ask him under the spirit of conviction, what must we do to respond? John is telling them, repent, repent. Well, verse 10, and the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to shear with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. He's telling the people who have abundance to share with those who are less fortunate. He's talking about a redistribution of wealth through charity, through philanthropy, through empathy. The next group, verse 12. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? Got to understand, these people are coming because the power of God is at work and the spirit of conviction is upon them that how they're living and what they're doing needs to change. So he says, repent. And he says, well, what do we need to do? The tax collectors, and you understand the tax collectors were individuals who were commissioned by the Roman government to collect taxes from their own people, the Jews. And the Roman government said, we want this much. But the tax collector could mark it up. You all know about markup, right? Oh, yeah. Especially if you're trying to buy a new car today. 
far above MSRP. But mark it up. Price gouging, etc. So that's why tax collectors were hated by the people because they were exploiting their own people. So what does he say? Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Stop exploiting the people. The soldiers, and the soldiers in those days were law enforcement. You know about law enforcement, right? You know about law enforcement, right? You probably have some in the church, right? Who are members here. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Wait a minute. This sounds like New York. But this was 2,000 years ago. This couldn't possibly be going on today, 2,000 years later. But the answer is, yes, it is. Verse 15, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. Of course, John clarified that he wasn't. But the key word again, the key word in, 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 in the first passage was what? Don't fail class. The key word in the first passage with the miracle was what? Now let's make it one word. Expectation. He expected to receive something, right? So that was the individual. Now it's a collective body of people here. And what is the operative word again? Expectation. Expectation. Expectation is powerful. It has a powerful influence on you because it operates on a subconscious level. The operative word, expectation. Guess what? What you expect of yourself will either lead you to despair and bury your gift, talents, and ability, or what you expect of yourself will fill you with energy, creativity, innovation, and productivity. Expectation sets the atmosphere for miracles. I'm going to try that one more time. Look, when the professor tells you what's going to be on the test, <laughs> write it down. And I'm not giving the test. Life is going to test you on what you hear today. Expectation sets the atmosphere for miracles. You know why the worship is so important? Because worship sets the atmosphere. The word gives you the promise. But then you have to bring the expectation. The man responded to Peter, the apostles, Peter and John, expecting to receive something. Expectation sets the atmosphere for miracles. And in the collective body, because it's true of the individual, it's true of a group, the collective body, expectation sets the atmosphere for change. And they were looking for change. They were looking for Messiah. They were looking for a messianic figure. This is why Jesus comes on the scene at this particular time. 
people were ready for it. The atmosphere was right because people were expecting. And guess what? If you don't expect anything from yourself, you won't get anything from yourself. And people like that get mad with everybody else. Expectation sets the atmosphere for miracles. Expectation sets the atmosphere for change. And change is the only constant in life. It's the essence of maturation. You'll never grow unless you're willing to change. A stubborn person will always be an ignorant person because they refuse to be taught. And why is that a problem? Because the quality of your thinking determines the quality of your life. I'm going to say it again because you clap. The quality of your thinking determines the quality of your life. And we know, we know the association between behavior and thought because little kids, what do we say when they do something dumb and stupid? We say, what were you thinking? We know the association. And that's why the Bible says you'll be transformed by the renewing of your mind because then you'll be able to prove what is the good acceptable and perfect will of God but you have to change the way you think and it begins with changing your expectations of yourself the expectations of yourself your self expectations is one thing but also the expectations of people around you will have a strong influence on you for better or for worse it is proven in a classroom that when the teacher has low expectations of the student, they perform poorly. But when the teacher has high expectations of the students, they perform well because of the expectation that's placed upon them. <laughs> expectation is powerful. It'll change you. And people don't get much because they don't expect much, especially of themselves. Turn to your neighbor and say, he's talking to you. He's all in your business. <laughs> the common theme throughout the Bible, the original intent in the mind of God is human flourishing. You need to write that down. The only reason why we have a redemptive plan is because things went off course. But originally, what was God's intention? Human flourishing. It was true when God told Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, have dominion, subdue. How many got that far in your Bible reading? <laughs> Some people are still working their way through Genesis 1.1. <laughs> Human flourishing. Got to understand that. Human flourishing. Even after things went wrong in the garden, Adam and Eve fail, and man is propelled into a condition of brokenness and woundedness, and things got so bad, and God had to bring a cataclysmic flood. After the flood, 
Things settled down, and now he's relaunching a new earth, a new humanity. What does he say to Noah and his family? Be fruitful. Multiply. So the intent didn't change, but the conditions under which the intent will now be carried out has changed. Before the fall, all of creation would work in cooperation with the human flourishing mandate. But once the fall entered and all of creation now began to groan and travail for repair and restoration, creation will not cooperate the way it was intended to do because things were broken. Now man has to toil, sweat of his brow, which means that it'll still produce, but not under the same conditions. How many get that? So you don't get off the hook. You still got to work. And how many understand that the goal of work is rest? You better understand it today. That's why he made the Sabbath. That's why he made it holy. That's why he hallowed it. And he said, six days shall thou labor all right, little King James language there. Six days shall thou labor, but the seventh day is sacred. You must what? Rest, because the Sabbath was made for man. The goal of work is rest. And those who refuse to work never rest. I, I, I was going to mention that this is good preaching, but I'm glad you caught up on it. I'm glad you got that. How many understand what I'm talking about? You work hard throughout your life so that you can what? Rest. You work during the week so that you can what? Rest. So the quality of your work determines the quality of your rest. If your work is poor and shabby, your rest will be poor and shabby. And don't confuse things. When you work, work. When you play, play. Don't be working thinking about playing. Don't be playing thinking about working. What's the goal of work? So you work hard so you can rest. Very important. But the conditions have changed. So he told Noah, be fruitful, multiply. Jesus comes along. What does Jesus say? I'm come that you might have what? Life. And that you might have it more abundantly. A full life. So human flourishing is still the theme. It's still the intent of God. But the conditions have changed. And like I said about the man standing on the corner trying to change winter by protesting it, wearing shorts in the cold, it's not going to change. And he will say, and see, here's a deceptive thing. That man can stay on that corner from December to April and be deceived because things start warming up and he thinks he did that. Jesus said, be careful that, that the light that is in you be not darkness. In other words, make sure that the truth you have is the truth. 
I've seen people go down for a lie. So the conditions have changed. So let me, in the time that I don't have left, you know, it doesn't matter what church I preach in, they use the same clock. It always runs out of time. Clocks don't understand the anointing. So listen. Life is both threat and promise. You need to write that down. Life is both threat and promise. It's both what? Threat and promise. The Bible does talk about the threat of judgment, failure, and destruction when you fail to appreciate and live by a certain set of rules that God has built into the universe. But mostly the Bible is filled with promise. 8,810 promises. And you know what, you know what, you know what um, politicians do? What do they do on the campaign trail? They make a bunch of promises that many of them know they can't fulfill. But it sounds good. Gets your vote. But the promises of Scripture, God is not a man that he should lie. If he promised it, he can bring it to pass. He can fulfill it. How many believe that? How many believe that? But understand the rules. Life is what? Both what? Threat and if you focus on the threat, you're going to miss the promise. And some people's lens has been so jaded by life that they can't see the promise. So they have very, very little or poor expectations. Life is what? Both. And, and what do you need to focus on? You don't deny the threat, you don't ignore the threat, you manage the threat while you pursue the promise. It's like we all have strengths and weaknesses in life. We don't focus on our weaknesses, we focus on our strength, but we manage our weaknesses. Otherwise, it'll undermine what our strength achieves. Amen? Here's another one for you. Life is both adversity with opportunity. Oh, write that down. Come on, you come, to, you come to church, take notes, right? Whoever has the best notes will have the better life. Those who don't take notes, they leave here and say, man, that was good. What did he say? <laughs> write it down. Write it down. Out of the head, onto the paper. Or into the device. Life is both adversity with opportunity. Come on, guess it. Adversity with opportunity. Now, I hear the music playing, and we got a keyboardist in our church who starts playing music too when I'm preaching. But I'm the pastor back there. But you're the pastor here. What should I do? Should I? It's funny when the numbers turn red. You know you're in trouble. <laughs> Life is both adversity with, with, with. Key word, 
with opportunity. So if it's adversity with opportunity, you must not stay stuck on the adversity. What you should be looking for is the opportunity that the adversity brings. All right, 20 people got it. Because you can be so overwhelmed by the adversity that it changes your expectation and it just reduces your excitement and energy and you can fall into despair and bury the very things that can lift you out and overcome the adversity. It all depends on how you look at it. Adversity with what? Come on. So when the adversity comes, what do you also look for? What, does, what opportunity does this adversity offer me? Uh, okay, thank you. I got permission. Adversity with what? Opportunity. So when the no comes, the rejection comes, and it creates anxiety and stress, what are you looking at? Okay. This is, there's got to be an opportunity here. I've got to, maybe I've got to shift directions. Maybe I've got to renew my plan. Maybe I've got to rethink my approach. Maybe I've got to redevelop. I, whatever it is that I need to change because change is the only constant in my life, right? And expectation sets the atmosphere for that change. So I'm expecting to find an opportunity somewhere in the midst of this adversity. It's a way of thinking. It's a way of life. So let me give you this example, and <laughs> Pastor Terry wants to make sure I share. So all of us have motivational needs, those things that stir us. There are primary, secondary, and tertiary needs. My wife's primary motivational need is safety and security. That motivates her. That gets her excited. She wants to make sure the children are safe and secure. I am safe and secure. The people in the church are safe and secure. So anything that disrupts safety or presents a threat in any way, she zeroes in on it right away. That's why when, she, when we were giving out titles in the early part of the church, I, I made her director of quality control. That way you can cover everything. But that's what she's about. Now, in order to have safety and security, you also need to have consistency and stability that comes from consistency. Are you with me? That's the way she is. And unfortunately, there's a downside to that primary motivation. All right? That primary motivational need. Because people like that have a hard time with change. Because once they settle into something that's stable and secure and safe, they feel comfortable there. So anything that looks to change that is a disruption, even if it's changed for the better. So it takes them longer to adapt and adjust to change. Some of you in here can relate to what I'm saying. So we're moving into a new house. And how many know that when you move into a new house, you discover how much junk you accumulated in the house that you're in? So we're moving, 
and the moving is taking too long. So we knew that if we get her out of the house and into the new house, we can move a lot faster. But as long as she's still there in the old house, she's going to say, wait, wait, I have to look at that. Wait, wait, no, no, we need that. This is stuff we haven't used in 10 years, but we need it. And we're going back and forth. So we said, we, 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 we. so we started, you know, we, we actually prayed. Okay, Lord, help us. We need some help with this. All right. So help can come in different ways. So the landscapers were aerating the soil. And that's where they have these blades that dig down about six inches, four to six inches into the soil to aerate it. So while they were aerating the soil, they cut the cable wire. And they cut it in several places. So there was no files, no internet, no phone, no movies, no TV. This was the old house. And my wife calls, she says, we, we don't have any power, we don't, I, you know, no internet, everything's, everything's down. And I said, oh man, because I'm thinking now they're going to have to send a team out, they're going to have to discover where it's, the, the line is cut, they're going to have to dig it up, they're going to have to run a new line, that's going to take a whole nightmare, they have to submit a, 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 a process and all that kind of stuff. This could take weeks. This is adversity. What are we going to do? And my wife is saying, look, you got to do something. And it's like if we had internet, you know, she could watch some stuff on, on, on her iPad. But no, nothing. Down. Zero. And what am I looking for now? Come on, what am I looking for now? And it hit me. The opportunity hit me. Just slapped me in the face. I called her. I said, listen, we've got internet and television at the new house. She said, you, it's already set up? I said, yeah. I said, yeah. She said, but I'm still moving. I said, listen, pack a few things. Act like we're going away for a few days. And we'll just go over to the new house and chill out. She said, you're right, let's do that. I didn't help her pack. I didn't want to sing too eager. You know, you could mess up the opportunity, right? She packed. We went over to the new house. She's been there ever since. And now we're moving boxes and we're getting things done. Because I look for the opportunity. Life is what it is. You've got to make the best of it. God has given us the tools. We've got to use them. It's on us. Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Which means access has now been given. The way is open to the kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom of heaven? Righteousness, peace, joy, truth, prosperity. The access 
has been made available. But in order to get in, you have to repent. And we've made that a religious word. But the Greek metaneo, repent, simply means this. Change of mind evidenced by a change in action. You must change if you want to enter a better life, move to the next level, take advantage of opportunity when it presents itself, lean into the promises, you've got to change. And that change begins with the way you think. The quality of your life is determined by the quality of your thinking. Did you get anything out of this today? God wants you to have a better life. You've got to put in the work so that you can rest. Come on, let's all stand. Can I pray over you? Yes. Pastor, is that okay? Thank you. The psalmist says, the entrance of your word gives light. And when the lights go on and you begin to see things differently, don't let the darkness rush back in. Take that light, run with it. And the more you apply it, the more you do it, the more it becomes a part of who you are as a person. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful congregation. Thank you for all of those who have opened their heart to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and by faith entered your kingdom. Thank you for the truths that we've heard this morning. And thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're going to translate those truths into the context of their own personal life. Show them where, when, and how to apply what they've heard so that they can see the fruit so that they can see the joy that comes from it. Bless this house, Father. Bless these people. We ask you and we thank you in advance. In Jesus' precious name, amen and amen. Much love to you, the Life Christian Church. Thank you for receiving me today. You're in our prayers. We are family. God bless.